happy to be studying Shamshon uh, Farsh's um, 19 letters yet again. Um, it's an exciting opportunity. Uh, it just it's it is important, I believe, uh, to put it into a context because uh, because there is a lot here that over time has been either uh, misunderstood or misinterpreted or seen perhaps as as not within certain traditional. I'm sorry. No. Are you okay, everybody can hear me. Um, certain traditional understandings of Judaism. Uh, so Rabbi Elias, who is the who is the author of this edition that we're using for this for this class, um, apparently I, I can't speak to that, but I see Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Weiner is on and she had the privilege of actually hearing directly from Rabbi Elias himself. I think my mother-in-law oh. who's on here also might also have heard the uh, Rabbi Elias definitely his my understanding is that his the safer that you have was based on his notes from teaching it in seminary, Boyer Seminary for yeah, I mean, he, that's what he writes. Years. That is that is his. Uh, that's what right, he writes so, here. This is this is Rabbi Elias's version. Right. Um, so I went to his seminary, so I learned different. I have my notes somewhere in the attic. Um. Uh, yeah. If somebody's had, I see somebody in the note just sent a note that they're having problems hearing. Try turning the volume on your computer up. Um. It might be your computer because uh, can everybody else hear me? Is there anyone that can't hear me? Alan says we're good. Okay, okay. So uh, yeah. Um, okay, so what? There are a couple of things that Elias points out in the in the introduction here. I don't want to read through the whole entire introduction because it, it would take us all the whole class. But he does point out that many people, um, Rabbi Shemshvul Hirsch is uh, hash. Um, approach to Jewish life is what was called Torah im Darach Eretz. Um, this is, uh, to some people, they see that as the father of, they see Rav Hirsch as the father of modern orthodoxy. Uh, that echoes uh, Rabbi Elias for good reason. Um, and he and he's extremely critical of that view, especially those that would say that. And he takes great issue, again, if you want to, if you want to read through in the, the introduction to this, you'll see where he points out specific issues that he has, and I believe he has longer pieces that he wrote um, sort of uh, taking away from that. There were others who felt that Rabbi Shabbat Shalom perhaps was not such a big Talmud Chacham, perhaps he was not such a great scholar. I just want to say this, uh, but by the time he was 28 years old, he was, uh, um, he was a, one of the greatest scholars in Germany. Um, he was a ch- chief rabbi of a of a large part of uh, uh, of Bavaria at a very young age. He was a member of the German Parliament, which I'm not sure exactly how that translates vis a vis what we would see what we would do. But but it certainly puts him as a leader of Jew of in Jewish life. And he rebuilt German Jewry in Frankfurt from literally from nothing. In other when he arrived in Frankfurt, I believe there was less than a million. Of Shomer Shabbos Yidden, which is which in itself is stunning. You know, it's, it's absolutely incredible that the degree to which German Jewry um, fell apart, the speed at which it fell apart. The Chassam Sofer, for instance, who died in eighteen again different ver- versions that you'll see, thirty six, thirty eight, but thereabouts, was born in Frankfurt at uh, the time when Reb Nassim uh, Adler was a was a rav there. Frankfurt was an what we would call an ir be'em be'israel. It was a major Torah center. Um, Rabbi Yeshua Falk, the Pnei Yeshua, was a rub in Frankfurt. The Shagas Arye was a rub in Frankfurt. These great scholars were all were 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 leaders of the Frank, of Frankfurt jury. By the time of Hirsch comes around in the in the eighteen in the late eighteen twenties, early eighteen thirties, there isn't a minion of Shomer Shabbos Jews left in the city, and he re- literally rebuilt German Jewry from the ground up. Um, clearly, he is a, a leader extraordinary, He's a, a, and a, a scholar of great note. And I remember seeing in the biography, which is, if anybody has the patience for it, it's a fantastic, not just a biography of Hirsch, but just a, a historical overview of the time. Um, the the uh, It's written by Jonathan Rosenblum, and he always does a phenomenal job. Um, that that uh, that 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 art scroll biography of, of Rav Shamshu Hirsch is is fantastic, 
and the, the you know it's it's well worth your while just to get an understanding and a flavor for the times in which he lived. Not everything that Rav Hirsch said was necessarily agreed with by everybody, but again, we have a we do have a principle in Torah in general of elu elu diral kim So there are many approaches. There are harbei lamakum. There are many ways to to serve the Hashem. There are many ways to serve Hashem. Many people have found different systems and different and different ideas that are helpful for them in order to be able to come to a greater uh, knowledge and, and a greater connection to the Hashem. What's unique about the nineteen letters is that Rav Hirsch presents a framework for understanding Yiddishkeit and for understanding Judaism in a very, very modern idiom, a modern context, in a way that uh, that many others uh, uh, fail to do. Um, and he's critical of them, quite honestly. And uh, again, here, okay, so so I am, I am uh, by no means an, an authority to criticize Rabbi Elias. Um, Reading Rav Hirsch's uh, writings here objectively, I do find that he is somewhat uh, critical of his Eastern European counterparts, of what he perceives as Judaism that became uh, very much by, followed by rote without a deep understanding of what was being done. Rabbi Elias, um, I don't know how to say this. Rabbi Elias is a little bit more apologetic about Rav Hirsch's rough edges, if you will, when he approaches this. Again, Rabbi Elias, he has greater experience, personal experience. He met the people who, he knew people who knew Rav Hirsch, or if they didn't know Rav Hirsch, they certainly knew knew Rav Hirsch's son-in-law. And he uh, he was intimately involved with them so he can talk more directly about the personal uh, connection that Reverse had with that world and the respect that he had for them. But in the writings, certainly some critique of that does come through, and, and it's not unjustified, I personally, from my, my personal opinion. It's not unjustified at all. It is, a, it is a danger, I believe, that we face today as well. In other words, we have a principle and Chazal and rabbis teach us that Torah should never become a mitzvah sanashim melumada. It should never become a habit. It should never become things that we do just because this is what was always done. It's not not doing something because that's the way it was always done is not a reason to discard it. But many times, just because that's the way it was always done is not the answer or is not enough to understand why we should do it. If Hirsch takes a very um, practical hands-on approach to Yiddishkeit. He wants to show a model of how it actually serves me in this world. Specifically, not, not so much, to some degree here in the 19 letters, he does that certainly throughout Horev, where, which, is, which is, he was, is his, I would say, his magnum opus, and which is the, which was designed to, to, to um, describe and define how mitzvot are supposed to shape a person. In fact, um, for those of you that remember, Rabbi Wiener, who used to be in Sharon, actually uh, has a fantastic work where using the works of Rav Hirsch, both in Chorev and in the 19 letters, he shows how each and every mitzvah, which character breaks a breakdown of character traits, which character trait it's supposed to affect, and how it's supposed to change a person's life. Rav Hirsch You'll see, you'll see this in the 19 letters, very much does not buy into, we do this because we get schar in Olam Haba, because we get reward in the world to come. Every part of Yiddishkeit to Rav Hirsch was practical and down to earth, which is what leads some people to believe that perhaps Rav Hirsch was not well-versed in Kabbalah, perhaps was not well-versed in more esoteric uh, uh, spiritual works. This is, this is a mistake. It, it, it just fits in with... Um, uh, at the at the risk of sounding uh, pejorative, but I don't mean it that way. But it fits in with the very practical German approach to things. That everything very hands on. You have to see exactly how how it plays out. Perhaps others that come from slightly different cultures, and you see this in often. You see how where we live in, uh, impacts our our outlook and uh, and our worldview. Uh, to a certain degree, even if we see it through the lens of Torah, 
but we're certainly influenced by the by the cultures and the societies that are around us of what becomes more acceptable to us. I mean, just take a just take a brief look at the, the difference between the way Sfardim see things and, and Ashkenazim see things, the way Hasidim see things and non-Hasidim. It, it it does play out in that in that manner. Okay, uh, and not to belabor that point, and I don't want to spend too much time on that because I want I really want to get into it. So the first letter that Rav Hirsch lays out, it's it's worthwhile. I'm not going to read through it together. Um, the synopsis that that um, that uh, Rabbi um, Elias provides at the beginning of each letter. It's worthwhile if you get a moment just to, even if you don't listen to me and, and just take a brief glance at what he's saying over there, you'll see a, a nice outline of what each each letter is supposed to present. The first letter is not rehearsed speaking at all. The, again, the, the work in the 19 letters was composed like this. What happened was Hirsch wrote his, his Sefer Chorev. Chorev was meant to be his exposition on mitzvot say on positive mitzvot, and then he had a, another work that he was writing on the negative mitzvot. I forgot what that one was called. And I don't think it was ever published. Um, and, and and he took it to the publisher. It was a two-volume, I think close to a 1,000 pages work, and he wanted to have it published. And the way it worked in those days was the publisher undertook the, the expense of the, of the entire publication and hoped to make some money in publishing it. Well, this new young, very young, he was in his 20s for sure, at the time that he wrote it, was putting out this revolutionary work on Judaism and on and on traditional Judaism to boot, which was not necessarily so popular at the time. They weren't convinced that they were going to make money on the book. So they told him, write up a thinner pamphlet, a synopsis of your ideas, so that we can see whether or not your style and your writings uh, have an appeal to the people out there. And that was the that was the birth of the nineteen letters. That's where the nineteen letters really came from. Was it sort of as as a precursor, pre publication uh, special, if you will, um, so that people could see what what so that people could see. It was called, I believe, in the original edition, it was called Letters of Ben Uziel. It's supposed to be a dialogue between two young men that grew up together, but one of them has remained traditional, and one of them has uh, abandoned his roots. Um, know that Rav Hirsch's main battle uh, at that time, and not only Rav Hirsch, many others at the same time, the Chassam Sofer had the same battle, and, and other, other great scholars had that same battle at the same time. They were battling against, pr- primarily against reform and the reformation of Judaism. Um, conservative, as we know it today, did not exist. Reform uh, was extreme uh, in the sense that it, it, they took on Many of the many of the trappings of the Christian Church, including things like, for instance, the reason why there's such a strong reaction to moving a bima to the front of the shul was because in the Reformed temples, that's what they did. They moved the they moved the bima, they moved the the, the platform where the chazan is from to the front of the shul to imitate the way it looked in the church. Um, their rabbis wore cassocks; they wore these 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 robes that looked similar to what the priests wore. They started to darshan in German. You know, you think about this, you think, oh, well, what's the big deal? Wasn't that the language, the lingua franca? Wasn't that the wasn't that the language of the people? What's the big deal? But it, it was a break with tradition. Instead of speaking in Yiddish, which was the Mama Lushen, which was the Lushen, which is the language of the Jewish people, or the language of the Jews, they started speaking in this sophisticated high German. Um, they. Those that became even more extreme moved Shabbos to Sunday for a time. There were Reformed temples that had Shabbos on Sunday. They called their shuls, they called their their Beit Knesset, their their or their Mikdash Maat, their mini temple, their mini Beit Hamikdash. They called it a temple. They called it a temple because they rejected the notion of Mashiach. They rejected the notion of a, of a redemption. They rejected the notion of, of that the Jewish people are going back to Eretz Yisrael. This is our temple. The temple is here in Berlin. The temple is here in Hamburg. It's not, we're not going back to Eretz Yisrael. So the primary battle of the day um, of all the of all the great leaders, certainly in Western Europe of the day, was was against uh, reform, the reformation of Judaism. However, at the same time as the reform, obviously, was the emancipation, was the great emancipation of, Jew, of Jews. People, were the, for, Jews were for the first time admitted into, into uh, the largest society. They were allowed to, live in, allowed to live in the bigger cities, attend the universities, and, uh, and people's 
minds were quote unquote being opened up. They were being exposed to uh, a whole new uh, world of ideas and concepts, and and the and people were, were people the 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 Judaism as we know it was hemorrhaging. Um, there's a there's a well known idea that 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 you know um, the great uh, founder of the Musa movement, Rabbi Salsawanter, in the 18 later later on in the 1850s 1860s moved from moved from Eastern Europe to France. He really, he really moved to Western to to Eastern Germany, the Eastern part of Germany to and to France. Um, and they asked him why he went there to to he took his Muslim movement from 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 Belita, from Lithuania, where he was in Eastern Europe, and he moved to to Western Europe. And he would say, they say over in his name a marshal, a parable for that for the following idea. They said that that Rousseau Salanta wrote that uh, you know when you have a runaway train, a speeding train, a locomotive that's that is that is out of control. So if it's at the top of a hill and it's coming down, you have tons and tons of steel rushing down at you. There's no way you're stopping it. You got to wait until it bottoms out at the bottom of the hill, and then you can hope to turn things around. His feeling was that in Western Europe, where the emancipation first took hold and uh, and and the Enlightenment began, that his feeling was that it, that by by the mid by the mid 1800s, Western Europe had bottomed out, and there was hope to hope to can to capture people and turn things around. As opposed to Eastern Europe at that time was just beginning uh, uh, its its runaway breakneck uh, 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 ideas and idealism, and the the birth of ideal of 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 all of the isms was was just moving to the east. Rousseau didn't feel like you'd have such an effect over there, but this is the, this was this is the milieu in which of Hirsch himself was functioning, and he he does later on in the book take issue with reform. And and the reformation of Judaism, but he really begins with simply a simple. Ex, uh, uh, his goal is to uh, give deeper meaning to Judea, J- a Jewish approach in general. Talk, talk about uh, people's uh, escaping or attempting to move away from it. We'll, we'll see it in. in a, I'll, I'll point it out to you in a footnote that, we'll, that we can skip to. Uh, that's worthwhile reading in in the middle. Um, uh, one of the footnotes over here that he talks about uh, uh, that um, Rabbi Elias puts in the, in the, to the footnotes. But the first letter is really the letter of complaint. It's the letter of rejection, rejecting the rejecting of all common of all traditional values, showing how they are archaic and self-serving, and they don't really benefit mankind or the individual in any way or form. And, and it's essentially basically an attack. On Judaism, so it's by the it's the, this letter is written by the the correspondent to the rabbi. The rabbi in the in the at least in the narrative is is a man by the name of is Naftali, which presumably is of Hirsch himself. And he, the person to to whom he's writing is Benjamin, who is this enlightened young Jewish fellow who Naftali is trying to influence and trying to 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 sway to back to the path. Of of the me- deeper meaning of what Judaism is really all about. So let's let's without not, not, not too much beating around the bush. Let's let's uh, let's take a, a, a dive into into what he has to say. So we start on page on page three. If you have the text, if people don't have the text, I was going to email it to people. But if people don't have the text, so for tonight, I guess you can listen. And then if you'll email me, I will I will glean out of the at least the first couple of pages. I'm uh, in the past. I've spoken to the Publishers, they're okay with, with uh, at least as an introduction, until people can get their hands on the book. Um, that we that we copy we copy a few pages and, and allow people to read it. People want the book. I say I included a link to Feldheim's website where you can where the book is available, um, where it's available to be ordered. Okay, so he starts off my dear Naftali, Naftali being the rabbi to whom uh, Benjamin is writing. After a separation of many years, you chanced to travel through the town where I live. And we had the good fortune to meet again for a short fleeting hour. You could not imagine, my dear Naftali, what interest the subject of our conversation had for me and what interest it still has. Obviously, they started talking about their traditional, their values and their 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 Weltanschauung, their, their worldviews and how they differed. 
You found me so changed in my religious views and even more so in my actions and practices that in spite of your genial, tolerant nature, you could not hold back the questions that sprang spontaneously as it were to your lips. Since when and why? And in response, I gave voice to a whole series of accusations against Judaism about which my eyes have been opened by reading and coming into contact with the world only after I had left my parents' home and hearth. Uh, uh, so again, what you have over here is, is this is this was the challenge of the day. Um, people were exposed to new and exciting ideas, to knowledge that they had never known was existed outside the framework of, of, of the Jewish world. Their, their Jewish world itself was, as we'll see in a moment, was very traditional, very stilted, and without much explanation to it. It's just you do this because this is what we have always done. And that's not an answer that was working for the young people of that generation. I don't wonder, you don't wonder if you haven't met a few young people like that yourself nowadays. So you listened quietly to my tirade. And when I had done, you only replied, do you believe that you really understand the concepts which you are attacking? This is a, this is a profound point. And, and it's one that, that, that we always have to frame. In other words, whenever we have a discussion, uh, it's important to define terms and to know exactly what we're talking about. More than that is, and this, this by the way, I believe is a, is a huge problem in today's society, um, much more so than ever before, the, the disease of the internet, pardon me, again, obviously the internet has a lot of very, very uh, good qualities and has the, a lot of information and it's very helpful, but every person becomes an expert on every subject. Um, it's funny that a person, you know, has to go to medical school for four years and learn to become a doctor. And then he meets the patients who, who did a 10 minute Google search who understand their disease and their, and their diagnosis and, and how it needs to be treated better than the doctor himself. I'm not saying that it's not possible that a person can find knowledge that the doctor himself doesn't necessarily handle. That you can't read an article that could be eye opening. But the reality is, is that the assumption that we all know better um, is, is certainly a, a disease of our time, even more so than it must have been back then. And this is the, this is the, the question that, that, that the, the rabbi raised to his young friend was like, you're attacking something in a system which you presume that you understand because you grew up in it and you practiced it, so to speak, as a young person, and now you think you know it. This is, a, this is, a, this is a, an idea that I emphasize many times when we study together. You, you cannot go through life with the same perspective uh, when you're six as when you're 60 or 16 or 26, or, or, right? A person, just as a person matures in every aspect and every dimension of his life. You have to mature, we have to mature in our approach to Torah and in approach to Torah knowledge and approach to Judaism. If we don't do that, then we're fooling ourselves. We're not, we're not really understanding it to the level that we really can. And just like a person who is six years old cannot, cannot possibly understand things that a 16-year-old will understand. Let me, let me just go off a little bit on a tangent on one of my, one of my, one of my uh, soapbox little speeches. Medrash, medrash um, is, is, is something that people are taught from a very young age. They're taught medrashim. Medrashim are these fantastical stories relating to the explanation of psukim and concepts in, in the Torah. And we, we learn them as children. And we're taught them as, as stories. I'll give you a classical example that uh, um, it says that Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, when he came to battle against Og, the giant, Og, the giant man who, uh, who was the leader of, who was the leader of, um, of Moab, of uh, one of the leaders of Moab, I believe it is, uh, Midian, excuse me, Midian, right? So, so, so when he attacked Og, so it says that Moshe Rabbeinu was 10 amos tall, 10 cubits tall, 10 cubits would be roughly anywhere between, uh, would it be anywhere, a cubit is, a, is, is either anywhere from 18 to 24 inches. So Moshe Rabbeinu was 10 cubits tall would mean that he, that he was, that, that he was either 10 amos tall, anywhere from 180 inches to 240 inches tall. He jumped up 10 inches, 10, 10 almost, excuse me. He had an axe that was 10 almost long, and he struck Og on his ankle, okay? That's, that's what the measure says. Many, when you're a child, so what you, what you see in your mind is you see this giant, giant man, and you see Moshe Rabbeinu who's bigger than your average person. 
Your average person is four amos tall, four, four between four and five amos tall, right? Uh, the Gemara says the person is four amos tall. Um, so a person is four amos. So Moshe Rabbeinu was 10 amos. He's more than twice the size of a normal person, jumps the height of more than two people as a part, as an axe that's two times as long as anyone, and he only hits Og on his ankle, right? So that, that's the picture we're given. The medrash is never meant to be taken literally. The word medrash means that it's a derash. It means that it has a deeper meaning to it. It means it's 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 a it it is there to teach a message. Uh, today's not the time to go into what what is the message of 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 um of Moshe Menu and his ten amos and his jumping ten amos, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But if you read it when you're 60, the way you read it when you're six, of course it's gonna sound ridiculous to you. You, you wouldn't, you don't, you don't study the same math. You don't look at math the same way when you're six. You don't look at science the same way as when you looked at it when you were six. And you certainly shouldn't look at Torah the same way. So this is what, but this, and that's, that's exactly what this Naftali raises to his friend, Benjamin. That what are you, what, what are you saying? What, do you really understand what you're talking about? Um, uh, have you gained by means of honest, earnest investigation an actual understanding in your own mind of something which should at least not be thrust aside thoughtlessly without reflection, since it is the holiest and most important matter in our life. It, it, we're brought up and we, under, or theoretically, right? And again, he, this person obviously had the benefit of a quote unquote religious upbringing. He had the benefit of being part of a family that was so connected to Yiddishkeit, to Judaism as we know it, to what was what we believe to be an objective truth, which should be, the goal of what for which we are all simply striving for what is the purpose and the meaningful for life and and a, and a guide to where that would come from how do you just thoughtlessly cast that aside you showed me that the only sources of my knowledge were on the one hand the mechanical practices of parental customs and a few poor fragments of bible and talmud acquired from polish jewish teachers here i tell you again reverse <clears throat> here it's it's almost an, as an aside but it's like this um it is a complaint about uh, the the fact that the religious education in Germany at the time was in the hands of people who came came from Eastern Europe, uh, who were perhaps more knowledgeable, textually speaking, uh, uh, from from than than their uh, German counterparts. But he feels that they did not they did not communicate or give over a Yiddishkeit that was vibrant and alive and full of meaning, but rather simply dry traditions. This is what we do. Um, how many times have I heard it from people of, uh, I, don't know, I don't necessarily know everyone who's in my audience here, but but how many times have I heard it from people of the people from an older generation who tell me, I remember my Rebbe, my Cheder Rebbe, and all I remember about him was he had a big stick and he used to slap me every time I asked a question. Uh, uh, that was the way it was. In other words, there, there was a certain th- th- thought that children are to be seen and not heard, even in the classroom. And uh, if a child opened his mouth or dared to ask a question or question something, it, w- it was not appreciated and it was not explained. And Rehersh himself here is there's there's just a little hint of this. If you take a look at footnote number two over here, you see that Rabbi, Eli- Rabbi Elias again. Uh, it, it's I'm being I'm, I'm I'm picking on him, but but Rabbi Elias tries to smooth over the rough edges of this. But to me, there is a critique here that Reverse felt that coming from from certain places where it was acceptable to just accept and not to necessarily not not to ju- just to go through with it, um, it wasn't pushed in the same degree as as in the German as as in Germany and as what he felt was necessary for the German for the for the youth of that generation, and that he didn't feel. That the malamdim, that the teachers that were coming across were necessarily skilled or capable actually of giving it over in the way it should be. So, poor fragments of Bible time acquired from Polish is little understood and little digested. And on the other hand, Christian writers, modern Jewish reformers of our faith, and above all, that view of life which our present age has produced, whose chief purpose and goal is only the suppression of the inner voice of conscience in favor of the external demands of comfort and ease. But he's he's uh, saying that, that essentially the, the there's a there's a, a a a belief system that you are buying into that 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 tells you that life is about finding finding ways in which you can enjoy it to its utmost and 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 that's if whether or not that is correct uh, needs to needs to be analyzed and needs to be understood. Whether or not that is a that is that is actually the case. So I was forced to confess how insufficient my knowledge was 
meaning my elements of my knowledge of Judaism, and I begged for you for instruction, for guidance and education. But the coachman called in and bidding me goodbye, we had time to call out in writing. So there, you we're going to start a correspondence. So my Jen Aftali, you have made me uncertain and distrustful of views I had held till now, but you have not refuted them, nor have you given me better ones to take their place. I am therefore taking advantage of your kind permission and repeat to you in writing several of my arguments, not for the purpose of defending my present mode of life, but in the sincere desire for better information and guidance. Fascinating, unbelievable. A person is actually open to a conversation. Listen, this, this is a, a, a lesson a lesson for life that we could well use in today's day and age, right? We live in a, in a I remember um, um, Dr. Lukens was here a couple of years ago and he gave it, he talked about this, how people today read uh, read the news from sources that agree with their point of view, have discussions with people who agree with their point of view, and anyone else that they, that, 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 that they would dares to voice an opinion is absolutely crazy or, or not normal. I was reading a, a, a book on, on, on society and, and, and social, so, and just the way um, things are developing in today's day and age. It's, it's what, what, what has become the mode of conversation is that anybody that disagrees you with you, you de- we, we tend, unfortunately, to dehumanize them. And we tend to dismiss them as being idiots and stupid and, and backward and, and, and not caring and dis- destructive of society and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it's across the board. Everybody has their point of view. And anyone who dares to disagree with my point of view or anybody sees something that's different from me, they're absolutely crazy. And they're part of that, you know, group that does whatever it is. It, it, it doesn't make a difference whether it's to the right or it's to the left. Anybody whose view is different than my own, I'm not willing to do that. But if we could only get to a point where we'd be open to have a conversation uh, where we put our views on the table and, and put them up for discussion and open to be challenged, uh, we'd be in a far better place. So every religion, I believe, should bring man nearer to his true purpose. Well, we have to figure out what that true purpose is, but here's how he defines that purpose. This purpose, what else can it be but the attainment of happiness and perfection? So <clears throat> in the definition of, of Benjamin, the purpose of life is to attain happiness and perfection. And yet, if we measure Judaism by these criteria, what utterly depressing results we do obtain. To what sort of happiness does Judaism lead its loyal followers? From time immemorial, misery and slavery have been their lot. They have been misunderstood or despised by other nations. And while the rest of mankind has ascended to the summit of culture, attaining prosperity and fortune, the adherents of Judaism have always remained poor in everything which makes human beings great and noble and which beautifies and dignifies existence. And the assumption here is that the, the pursuit of knowledge and, and, and cutting edge technology and comfort and pleasure from great music and tremendous literature, etc., all of that is inaccessible to the Jewish world. The only, only, the only thing that is our lot is misery and slavery. And his slavery doesn't, he may mean, he, he may be referring to physical slavery as in the slavery of Mitzrayim, but I think more he means slavery means we're slave to our own practices and to our limitations of what we eat and who we eat with and and when we get in a car and we don't get in a car and we use electricity. Our lives are full of do's, of do's and do, more, more, more don'ts than do's, and, and they're con- consistently negative and limiting in everything that we do. The Torah law itself forbids every enjoyment. It's a hindrance to all pleasure of life. Moreover, for 2,000 years, we've been tossed around by others like a plaything, a bouncing ball. And we and we are, even at this time, banished from the, all the paths of happiness. As for perfecting our human qualities, what culture, what conquests in the domain of science, art, or invention? In a word, what great achievements have Jews wrought in comparison with Egyptians, Phoenicians, Greeks, Romans, Italians, French, English, or Germans? Utterly deprived of all characteristics of nationhood, we are nevertheless considered a nation, and every one of us is doomed by his very birth to form an additional link in this chain of misery. The Torah is chiefly at fault in all this. By its laws that ensure our isolation in life, it arouses at the very least suspicion and hostile distrust. So we are stuck. We have this, this, this system by which we hold ourselves to be different, we dress differently, we eat differently, we comport ourselves in a different manner, and we don't participate in, in the broader society around us. 
or in any of the things, any of the pursuits that other people seem to enjoy and find pleasurable. And so what do we expect? By imposing a life of isolation, it indeed removes every incentive for exertion in science and art. Those are, uh, after, after all, the, the peak, the pinnacle of human, of human accomplishment is in the areas of developing our own knowledge, of exploring the frontiers, and but whether it be in the, in the practical area, in the areas of science, or whether it be in the imaginative areas, in the areas of art, and we have none of that. And therefore, they, because we have this stifling of these, of these urges and the stifling of, this, of these, of these uh, abilities, um, therefore, they do not flourish among us. We don't have, we have no, we, we don't accomplish anything in that. But again, one would turn in, of course, now to the, to the world, the world as it is today, and point out the number of Nobel Prize winners in, in the areas of economics and science and math, and even music and art that are, that are Jews. But when, again, if you look at them, uh, how many of them are actually, uh, are actually Torah observant Jews or religious Jews? Then it's not, it's, there are some, but not the same. And then you're going to say, so, well, maybe in, 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 in terms of our own culture, there's something that's sophisticated, but he doesn't see that. As for the study of our religion, it merely distorts the mind and leads it astray in subtleties and minutiae of petty distinctions until it becomes incapable of entertaining simple, straightforward opinions, right? This is the, uh, the outsider's view of the Talmud and of the hair-splitting arguments of, about tiny, of seemingly inconsequential matters uh, that that are seen as as something that what what do I care today in the age of the uh, of space travel about the show, the 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 cow that gores an ox um, or the ox that gores a cow or or whether or not somebody whether whether or not I left some fruit in the marketplace if it was in a pile of two or a pile of three etc. All these these ideas where do where do they really lead us and how do they really uh, make us any any better. I've also I've, I have always wondered more than a little how you, meaning his friend Naftali, who know how to appreciate the beauties of Virgil and Teso and Shakespeare, can fathom the logical edifices of Leibniz or Kant, can find pleasure in the formless, tasteless writings of the Old Testament. There's nothing. There's no power in it. There's no ability to, it, or in the illogical disputations of the Talmud, as I said, the hair-splitting minutia of, of you know different discussions about. Carbonos about sacrifices and about whether a cow has one black hair or two black hairs and does it make a difference? How does any of this? How does this appeal to a person who understands the beauty of culture and uh, and all the, all the all the wonders that are out there? What is their effect upon one's heart and life when when a person is caught up in all of this? What what becomes of him? Think about what a person becomes. He becomes a miserable, shriveled up, not non-existent person. The heart becomes exclusively absorbed. In anxious scruples about insignificant trifles, you become a person. Becomes a, a person could become could become could become uh, uh, caught up in you know did did it was it one drop of milk or two drops of milk was it sixty parts or maybe it was sixty one parts did did did, did I did I wash my hands this morning did I not wash my hands this morning did I count Sphira last night did I not count Sphira I'm always nervous I'm always looking over my shoulder I'm always worrying did things mix together. What, what is it? What goes on? Nothing is as taught except to fear God. I live a life of constant fear. I'm afraid of all of a sudden there's a, the, that bolt of lightning that's going to come out of the heavens and strike me down. That's the way I live my life, looking over my shoulder and worrying that I'm that I'm an evil person and that I haven't done the right thing. Everything down to the smallest, pettiest details of life is referred directly to God. Everything is about how 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 do I relate to what God's watching over me and with the punishment that's going to come. And so so many times I hear this. From from young people that again have have never have unfortunately never been exposed to the depth of Judaism. So what they say, it's all about the punishment. It's all about how you're going to suffer. It's all about how you're going to burn. You know, it's all about how 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 you're a terrible person and something that's negative. Life itself becomes a continuous monastic service, nothing but prayers and ceremonies. You go back to Shulni Daven over and over again. By the way, that that speaks to a different idea, which was that. There was a time when being in shul, being in the synagogue, that was people's, people's social interaction. That was their opportunity to see one another. That was their opportunity to get together. And because of that, many of the prayers became um, very extended and, and much longer than than perhaps so today. You know, you go to shul, you got to find a shul that can finish Shabbos morning davening in ninety minutes. Now it takes ninety five. That's already a slow minion. 
But there was a time when people actually wanted wanted to spend much longer in shul. And then as the as the appreciation for the beauty of that, and we'll see that some of this in a little bit in the power of reverse. In the, in the in the poetic side of his nature will come out in some of his answers here, um, where you see he goes on and on and on and talks about the power of the poetry. And that, that was, the, if you look at the, the tefillos, the prayers, especially piyutim, the additional prayers, they were based around poetry, they were based around a rhyme and a rhythm, and they were based around an understanding of the meaning of the words as generations went on and people understood less and less. So being in shul became a gross, more and more of a burden, but because they'd always done it, so people continued to do it, and without any understanding of it, it actually becomes something that is monastic service, service with just prayers and ceremonies that have no meaning. The most praiseworthy Jew is one who lives the most secluded life. The perception is that in order to be a tzaddik, in order to be a righteous person, in order to be somebody who is not who is connected to what he's supposed to do, you have to isolate yourself and you have to sit there and study right until until you can't see until your eyes can't can't even function anymore right and you and you never talk to anybody you never have a conversation with anybody and even if you try to have a conversation with them they can't even speak a, speak an entire sentence without uh, uh, without mumbling or, or saying words that you have no idea what they're talking about what, what kind of life is that um, though he permits it to um, okay so uh, is the one who lives the most secluded life and knows the least of the world though he permits it to support him. Here we have one of the real, this one really obviously is one of the canards out there, right? That all, they're just, they're just, um, they they just suck the life off of everybody around them. They expect the world to support them. They expect everything to be there. And every, they're, they're simply parasites. And they're not, they're not, they're not contributing anything to the, any additional wisdom or any additional growth to the world, there's nothing. They, they have nothing to waste his life in fasting, praying, and poring over meaningless writings. It has no significance, no, no, no. Uh, there's nothing that can actually, and no redeeming qualities to it that can actually change a person's life. Look for yourself at the book which is presented to us as the path of life. <clears throat> He's referring to. The section of Shulchan Aruch called the section of the of the of the Jewish legal codes called Arachaim. The section of legal codes that deals with the things that we do with in our daily life, starting with getting up in the morning and washing our hands and davening and putting on tefillin and talis, and then <clears throat> proceeding with the, with the morning prayers and then the afternoon prayers and benching and making brachos and then <coughs> Shabbos and Yom Tov and fasts and and Yom Tovim and the holidays, the, the, the laws for all the holidays. Just laws upon laws upon laws, details upon details upon details that, see, that are seemingly to certainly to the modern mind just meaningless. They're just there's no there's nothing that adds to any joy to life. There's nothing that brings any sense of purpose, any sense of accomplishment. It's all just tedious and repetitious and and based on superstition and and, and old fashioned ideas. Where does it all come from? Look for yourself at the book which is presented to us as the path of life, which contains all the duties of the Jew. <clears throat> what else does it teach but praying, fasting, and observing the festivals? Where is there a single word concerning our duties towards the active, busy life around us? Where do we have any instruction on how to function in our business, in, in our businesses, and in the way we conduct ourselves? In Arachayim, in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the book that's called The Path of Life, that's supposed to talk about the ideals of what you're supposed to be doing, there's no, there's no reference to this. And this, especially in our time, why it's quite impossible to keep these laws intended for an entirely different age. After all, if you think about it, that was great when you lived in an agricultural society and everything went everything went around how the agricultural cycle. But we living now, he's what he's talking at least in his time in an industrial age where we live in big cities and where there's all hustle and bustle and everything's about business and investment and people have to have to move forward. What do these laws do for me? Where, where, do, where, do they, where do they come into my daily existence? What limitations in traveling, what embarrassment in our association with Gentiles, what difficulties in every business activity? There's so much that you're limited from. You can't go out to restaurants. You can't eat vegetables. You got to worry about the bugs and the vegetables. And you got to worry about the meat and the milk. And you got to worry about the wine that they touch. And you got to worry about whether it's going to take you too long so it's going to be a problem with Shabbos. Or you have to worry about whether or not in the seats there's shotnays, whether or not what the material is in the, in the seats, there's a, there's there, there's a problems with ribbis, with taking with taking interest and with do, with dealing with business on a in a regular fashion. But wh- wh- how does it all play out? How does it how does it talk to us in in a modern society? 
please do not point in reply to the current efforts to reform Judaism. Don't tell me, says, this is a very interesting sort of side swipe from Hirsch right from the start, says Benjamin, don't tell me about the reform Jews. Don't tell me about those that are trying to chip away little, the, the rough edges of Judaism and say, you know, you can be a Jew in your home, but you have to be a German, be a German on the street. Um, there, indeed, everything that does not harmonize with today's concepts of the destiny of man or the needs of the time is being pared away little by little. But is this not in itself a step outside Judaism? So he recognizes right away that just to, to, for people to arbitrarily decide what is and what isn't useful and to, for, for, to be, for it to be a subjective reality that this is a relevant Judaism and this is irrelevant, you're going to end up with, with something that is not going to be the same in any two places and probably with any two people. And then you really don't have a system by which you live by. So if Judaism is actually a system, that's not a system that you can live by where you're reforming whatever you feel like reforming. Wouldn't it not be better then to adopt and implement these current concepts consistently on their own instead of trying them, tying them to ideas that are at variance with them? Why call it Judaism? Just drop the whole Judaism bit. And whatever we need, a new code that will work in a modern society, that's what we'll, that's what we'll take on. And we don't have to call it Judaism at all, um, uh, which can only produce an arbitrary patchwork that a system of, of, of looking. So moreover, for such reforming efforts, you also lack unity, legally constituted legislative bodies, authority. All such efforts remain only the strivings of individuals. That's going to be something that's going to change from place to place. And as I pointed out to you before, it, historically speaking, even in Germany themselves, amongst the amongst the reformers, there were just so many different levels. There were those who wanted to move Shabbos to Sunday. There were those who wanted to wear cassocks. There were those who wanted to introduce the organ into the into the shul. So because that's what they had in the church. There were those who wanted to introduce just the chazan saying things as they do the, the church, you know, that the, the church leader reads the hymn and the, there's nobody else that, say, that says anything. So that, that was not going to work. The most divergent opinions prevail among the rabbis and preachers, while some, as enlightened men of the time, tear down, others hold fast to the shaky structure and would rather be buried under it. I myself, comments this, uh, this uh, Benjamin, recently saw a young rabbi who, Whenever he travels, contents himself with prisoner's fare. He brings along with him a piece of bread so that he can eat because he doesn't know who he can trust. So he carries his piece of bread himself in simple-minded piety. And when one visits him, he can still be found pouring over folios of the Talmud. He's reading this ancient text that goes back, uh, that goes back at least at this time, almost, uh, almost 2,000 years. And is using that as the basis for his legal codes. What can you imagine? He's even said to grieve earnestly over the fact that some members of his congregation are so far advanced in enlightenment that they do not close their place of business on the Sabbath. What a silly man. Thinks that people should actually close down on Saturday. What? <laughs> Who would dream of such a thing? Why would, why would a person lose a whole day of business just because of some ancient customs? What shall become of us, dear Naftali? I'm about to marry, but God knows when I think that perhaps I shall have to exercise the duties of a father to children, I, I tremble. Excuse me, dear friend, for having spoken so freely about something which I know you revere, and I suppose you must, as a rabbi, on account of your position, here's a real dig, right? He says to him, you know, I, I understand that because you're a rabbi, and because being that you're a rabbi, that's how you earn your, your profession, so therefore, of course, you're going to have to defend this, as though to say, there's no, you clearly, I've made the point from an objective standpoint that there's no reality to anything, you know, to, to what Judaism stands for. And anyone that's defending it is only doing so because that's how he earns his bread. That's how he, that's how he, earns, his, that's how he earns his livelihood. But nobody could actually believe that it's something that's real. I'm confident that you have sufficient affection to left for me from uh, former days, so that in answering me, you will forget your office for what that teaches, I know quite well. I already know what you learned as a rabbi. So just tell me as an intellectual, intelligent human being how you're going to approach this. Because, because I don't want to hear your biased view that you, the things, the party line that you have to tell and, uh, and just try to push me off. I want to hear something real, some real thoughts as to what differences all this really makes and, and whether or not we really have to stick to this with my good wishes, Benjamin. So it's quite a, it's quite a vicious attack. And on the surface, he seems to have made some very good points. You know, words, where is the <laughs> cultural advancement of Judaism? Where are the beautiful literature? Liter where's the beautiful literature? Where is the artwork? Where are the, where are the cultural advances to which we can be proud of that we can point back to and say these things are, are, what, are what are really important? Um, 
Why, uh, why is it that we're so worried about minutia and, and, and tiny little things? What difference does it make if there's a drop of milk in there? Who cares? I mean, if I just read the ingredients on the label, so I know whether it's kosher, I need a whole kosher institution. I need somebody that's just going to go in there and, and inspect and see whether or not there's bugs and there's this. And that. What, where's it all coming from? What's the, per, what's the purpose behind all of it? What, it? what does it all really mean? So, Mitz Hashem, hopefully next week we will continue uh, to see how uh, um, Naftali answers. And really, the next, the, the, it's not, although it's billed as a correspondence, we're not going to see, uh, we're not going to see Benjamin again for probably another six, I believe it's another seven or eight letters until Benjamin actually comes back. We're going to get a whole full view, the gamut of, Ju- of Judaism, tracing it from beginning from a historical context and then putting it into a, into a cultural and a philosophical context. And then we'll they'll get to, to to examine some of the issues that uh, Benjamin gets to come back with. Okay, so of course, suggest that we read the introduction and the footnotes. The introduction, you should for sure read the footnotes. Feel free to read them. They're, they're all they're very interesting. Is that you know, Rabbi Elias has a he has a lot to say, and it's and it's uh, and uh, you know again. At times, I, I I hear what he's saying. At times, I you know as I pointed out, like for instance, footnote number two. Um, I'm not so I'm not so excited about. I, I'm not in a decision, but footnote number three, if you read it, it, gives you a very interesting overview of where exact what what the um, cultural milieu that uh, Benjamin himself that uh, uh, yeah Benjamin is actually coming from. So it is it is fascinating. Okay, for those that want to listen to the class again or to give a share with somebody else, I'll be posting it on my blog, which is called Judaism on Fire. On my uh, excuse me, not my blog, on my uh, um, I forgot what they call them. Uh, uh, podcast on my podcast, it's called Judaism on Fire, where you can listen to this and to other other classes that I have posted over there. But this this class and tomorrow's class with the uh, Circle Arrow Spiral will both be posted on on uh, on Judaism on Fire. If somebody wants to listen to it again, okay. Thank you very much. Thank everybody. you. Have a wonderful evening. Thank okay. you. I'll speak to you soon.